0: begin in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, your brothers and sisters in Christ. Uh, those of you that were with us, uh, I don't know, maybe four or five weeks ago, I asked a question about world-changing inventions. You may remember that. And I made you all write down what would be world-changing inventions in our world. Um, and our lists, I think, were somewhat different. Today, we're going to go a-, a step closer maybe to home I'm going to ask you, is there an event or an experience in your life personally that has changed things? What I mean by that is that, that how you, you maybe viewed the world, maybe even how you treated the people around you, is permanently different afterwards than it was before. So life-altering, life-changing events. Um, Maybe it's just an experience. Maybe it's, it's, it's including scaling a mountain, right? Many of you have maybe climbed 14ers in Colorado. We have lots of them, right? Uh, um, if, you, if you've done it yourself or if you've talked to people that have done it, uh, they, they will tell you about what it feels like to be on the mountaintop. And it, it's possible that some of it is the very thin air and having hiked for hours and hours. Um, but they'll almost describe it in a um, in a spiritual way, right? That this there there is an exhilaration to it, that there is a change, that 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 when they reach that pinnacle, um, that not only visually does the world look a little bit different, but but maybe they look a little bit different at themselves and and those that they love, right? Maybe you've done that. Maybe it's travel. Some of you enjoy traveling. Um, I have not, this is the Holy Land, I have not gone to Israel, but I've talked to people and, and one of the, the most common phrases that they will share with me is like, is that it is just phenomenal and that life is somewhat different afterwards, after you visit, right? Maybe you've had experiences like that in your travels, different cultures, different places, um, spots where you are, you, are, you are taken so far out of what you know or you're, comfort zone that when you go back home, you, you just operate slightly differently, right? Maybe skydiving. <laughs> Some of you are like, yep, I've skydived, right? Some of you are like, no way. <laughs> this would be a not great example of it, right? Uh, but maybe it's, maybe it's exhilaration like that. Maybe it's jumping out of a perfectly well-operated airplane just for the fun of it, right? Um, but it Changes you a little bit. Changes your perspective, right? Physically, but also, I would say, mentally, emotionally, and on some level, I think each of these, maybe spiritually as well. Maybe it's not necessarily traveling or an event. Maybe it's just the sight of beauty. Uh, this is uh, a painting by Raphael from 1520. It is located in uh, Vatican City. Um, this is a, a painting of Jesus transfiguration. Maybe that's changed you. Maybe, maybe uh, an incredible concert, maybe, maybe going to a play, maybe seeing beautiful works of art have changed you in some way where you look at things slightly different. I would guess if you haven't had one of these moments yet, you absolutely will. Right? There, there are what we would maybe call pinnacles or mountaintop experiences, I think, in each one of our lives where we encounter it and sometimes it's planned and expected, but sometimes it's unplanned and unexpected where we get to that point and, and we look back and, and life just looks slightly different. It changes our perspective literally on things, right? Today, that's what we want to talk about because three disciples went with Jesus to a literal mountaintop. And he was transfigured. Life changed for them. But here's the really wonderful thing. That very same thing is true for us as believers. Maybe not physically traveling to the same mountain that Christ was on at that transfiguration. But the change that occurs from that light shining in the darkness of our hearts is is just as transformational. And so that's what we'll look at today. Um, How does life look slightly different before and after that change? So that's going to be our theme Simply change. Uh, and we're gonna, I want to look at three different areas from our text today. Um, and I want us to reflect in kind of three different ways. So, um, how does Jesus' transfiguration affect how we view our past, kind of where we've come from? Um, how does it affect our future, so maybe where we're headed? Um, and then, lastly, how does it affect the day to day and the present of your everyday lives? So, those are going to be kind of the three areas that we look at as we go through our text. So, uh, you're welcome to follow along with me if you'd like. You're going to find it in your bulletin, of course, and I'll have it on the screen behind me here as well. Uh, verse 1 kind of sets up the setting, though, of what's happening with Jesus and his disciples. So, it says, After six days, Jesus took him, uh, took Peter, James and John, the brother of James, and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. Now, uh, understand, this, this is ab- about, we estimate, nine months away from Jesus' Um, imprisonment, execution, death on the cross. So if you understand Jesus' ministry, um, his ministry was about three years long. And there were certainly highs and lows throughout many of that. But um, most theologians will say that this moment, this mount of transfiguration, not only would he literally come down a mountain, but about nine months from now, he would be nailed to a cross in the holy city of Jerusalem. And so, um, as we look at this, this is is heavy on Jesus' heart. It's it's also being presented to his disciples more clearly than it ever had been before. So, in some sense, Jesus is saying, This this is happening. It's happening in your presence, and it's going to happen soon. So, just before our text, Jesus, in no uncertain terms, had told his disciples, "Um, I'm going to die. I'm going to be crucified, I'm going to give up my life. That had happened just before this, right? Peter had had an opportunity when Jesus asked him, um, who do you think I am? Why do you think I am here, right? Why do you think that I exist and you call me rabbi and you've been following me around for a couple years? Um, who, who exactly do you say that I am? And, and so Peter has this kind of pinnacle of confession of who Jesus is and he says, you are, you are the Christ, And you're like, yes, Peter, you got it, right? And and we think that they got it, but then Jesus says, but I will die. Right? Very clearly to them. Then we go up again here at Mount of Transfiguration. And and so you get this kind of juxtaposition, this back and forth of what's happening in our text. Uh, As to exactly where the Mount of Transfiguration is, we don't actually know. Uh, Most assume or, or most will say that it was on a mountain called Mount Tabor. This is a picture of it in Israel. Um, so we have to adjust our, our, um, our view of mountains a little bit when you sit in the shadow of the Rocky Mountains. Um, this is definitely a mountain in Israel. We might call it a a nice hike, a little bit of a hill, right? But, uh, but this is Mount Tabor. Um, on top of it is a monastery, the, the Monastery of Transfiguration, right? So um, that's on top of it. Here's another little picture of it there. Um, definitely a, a high point. You can see the surrounding area. Jesus takes these three disciples to this peak, to this high point. Um, and I think there's probably a few reasons for that. Could let me back up. Could Jesus have been transfigured? Could he have taught this lesson to these disciples anywhere? On the shore of Sea of Galilee? Absolutely. In Jerusalem? Absolutely. Anywhere he wanted. But I think Jesus also understands that not only um, are we spiritual, emotional beings, but also just physical as well. So um, they, they leave the crowds behind, literally, right, at the base of the hill. They... they, they They leave to a secluded spot. Jesus takes with him his three disciples, the the three disciples that he had taken with him um, for some other really intimate moments, right? Raising of Jairus' daughter. um, Peter, James, and John were, some people would call Jesus' inner circle. And they physically go up to a high mountain peak. And this is where they're going to experience Christ in his full glory, in his full divinity on the top of this mountain. Now, what does that mean? Two things. What did that mean for the disciples at that time? And what does that mean for you and I here today? Okay? So, verse 6 says this. uh, When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground, terrified. Now, you might be asking why I'm starting with this. I think it's good to start with the reaction from the disciples before anything else, you heard me read the text in our gospel reading, so you know what happens, right? You know that Jesus is transfigured. We're going to get to that in a bit. We know that, that um, God speaks words of affirmation about Jesus as his son. We know that happens too. But in the midst of all of this, and keep in mind, the disciples had seen some pretty amazing things already in the life of Jesus. They had seen him raise people from the dead, turn water into wine, like they, they had seen miracles. They had seen that, right? But it's here, in this text, that their interaction, their reaction, is just sheer terror. And I think that's the question we want to ask is, why? I think when they were in the presence of perfection, I think when they were in the presence of something that was so much bigger, so, much, so far outside of what they came to know, they intimately and instantly fell, understood how far short they fell. Put yourself in their place maybe just a little bit. These disciples who were with Jesus, who called him rabbi, who had just confessed that he was the Christ, now all of a sudden this is what you see, right? See him transfigured in front of you and hear the voice of God above. Remember what maybe had gone through those disciples' minds. What stories had they heard when Israelites, when their their ancestors had come into contact with God above? What stories had they heard when when um, believers in the past had come into the presence of God above? It was always frightening, to be honest. These disciples would have known intimately the stories of the disciple or the Israelites rather being saved from slavery in Egypt. And what led them through the wilderness? A pillar of fire, right? What was on top of Mount Sinai was God's presence himself. When Moses came down, his face still was shining from being in the presence of God above. And so when the disciples see this and hear it, they're absolutely terrified. Their reaction tells us exactly how they felt. I'm guessing every single sin that they had ever committed probably ran through their mind. Probably every single failure that they had ever had ran through their mind. Probably every single doubt that they had about Jesus, who they were following, ran through their mind because they were now in the presence of something that was so unlike them or anything that they had encountered before. I think we can get it. I think we get it, right? I think we understand that. Because when we look into our own hearts, our own lives, maybe if this even happens at times when you come to church, when we read the, 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 the words of our God above, when we hear of what he's done for us on the cross, there are times when um, it, it is far more guilt and shame that we feel than joy and triumph. There's been multiple times throughout my ministry uh, where I've talked to people uh, just out, out in the world. Uh, and invariably, it, uh, the question is asked, well, what do you, what do, you do? Like, what's your profession? Um, I tell them, well, I'm a pastor. I've had multiple times where when I'm talking to them, they'll express that they, they literally do not feel worthy to step into a church. They don't know me, they don't have any allegiance to me, they don't have any reason to say these things to me, but there, there is some level in them that says, um, I'd like to come to church, but I've got to clean up my act first. I'd like to step into those walls, maybe at some point. I'd like to learn more about uh, um, this transfigured uh, uh, Christ and God himself, but, but I've got to get myself right first before I ever sit down in one of these chairs. And I think we can understand it a little bit, right? Our, our, our failures, our sins, um, the, the moments when we have, we have acted in opposition to our God above and detrimentally to the people around us, I, I think it comes flooding back. Now, I think just in a secular, worldly sense, you maybe felt that. Uh, some of you here, I can tell, were world-class high school athletes? None of you? Some of you. Some of you have your letter jacket in the car. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm not going to point anyone out, I'm just saying, right? But, but, but here's, here's sometimes what happens, right? We, we, and, and rightfully so, we thank God like, for, for the gifts that He's given us, whether that's athletic or that's academic or these things. And, and you use them to your best of your ability. And, and maybe um, you've even risen to a level where you say that you, you are um, deemed as excellent in your sport or in your, uh, um, in your school or, or, or wherever you're at, and you are, are proud of the things that you have done, and then you come into contact with someone that is on a completely different level, right? Where you were the starting quarterback in your high school, and you can't even you can't even step on the field of a Division II college, right? Um, Or or within academia where you you were a 4.0, right? All the way through high school. And you get to college and university and all of a sudden, you've got an entire classroom full of 4.0s. And then you're not sure what to make of yourself anymore, right? I think that happens to us. When we come into the presence of something or someone that is so far beyond us, What it does is it gives us a greater sense of of our own inadequacies. And I think that's what happened here with the disciples Um, on an even greater level, right? In the presence of perfection, all of their flaws came pouring out. Uh, You remember that picture I showed at the beginning from Raphael? Uh, This is his painting of the transfiguration, right? Uh, And you can see some of the figures that are there, the disciples at the bottom. You can see their terror. Uh, But I wasn't fair to you. This is actually only the upper half of that picture. So if some of you know this picture, um, this is the bottom half of it. So you can kind of see where it was. It's a tall tall painting, right? This is the bottom. Raphael painted this image of the transfiguration, but he did it with two separate scenes. So the upper half is Jesus' transfiguration, the glory of Christ. But on the bottom half, it paints the picture, the depiction of what happens immediately after the Mount of Transfiguration. And when you go home, look through your Bibles and page through them. Immediately afterwards, the disciples encounter a boy who is possessed by a demon. Right? They do everything they can to heal him, to free him from this demon. They do everything they can to try to Fixed what was broken in him and for his family. And none of it worked. Not until Christ showed up and and drove the demon out. This was the last painting that Raphael ever painted. He died immediately after this. But maybe it is a good example of the dichotomy of being a human on this earth. The glory of Jesus' transfiguration, but in our daily lives struggle, the pain, and the suffering that we undergo. Now, one of the more interesting parts of this is many will say that the figure on the left-hand side there uh, is actually the gospel writer Matthew, and he's pointing specifically to Christ. And so that was Raphael's point, that life is not all mountaintop experiences that oftentimes It is pain, and it is struggle. But ultimately, what answer do we have? Matthew points to him. We know him as well. It's ultimately Christ, right? And who he is. So when we think about our past, ultimately we are pointed to Christ, a Savior that loved us even while we were still sinners, a savior that loves us even while we are broken, a savior that does not ask us to bring a certain amount to the table before he will even open the door, but a savior that entered our homes, our hearts, our churches, our world, in order to pull us from that. So when we consider our past, we look to Christ. You're forgiven. That has impact on our future as well. Let me read for you a couple more verses. Two and five it says this. There he was transfigured before them; his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as light. While he was still speaking, a bright a cloud covered them, and a voice from the cloud said, "This is my son, whom I love. With him, I am well pleased. Listen to him." Now, a few things we want to pick out from here. Uh, verse two uses that word transfigured, and you're becoming, you're quickly becoming Greek scholars. Uh, the Greek word for transfigured is is the root word for metamorphosis. Okay, so that's the exact same word. So metamorphosis. So what is happening here is Christ, what was pulling back his divinity. These disciples knew exactly that he was human. They had traveled with him. They ate with him. Uh, they had seen him uh, on the stress and the suffering that he had gone through. They knew intimately that he was. Human, and they had seen glimpses of his divinity when he performed miracles. But here, Jesus pulls back the veil. He says, You want to know the depths and the heights of who I actually am and why I am here? I'm going to give you a view of this. And it was a complete change, a metamorphosis in a sense. Jesus says to those disciples, You're going to see me killed. But this is what's going on behind the scene. All powerful. Now, if that wasn't enough, God himself places his seal of approval on Jesus. And I want to pick out three things. says, This is my son. I love him. Listen to him. (laughs) Those words matter, don't they? It's a pretty simple sentence. Number one, our God above says, "This, this is relational. Right? This is my very own flesh and blood, um, a part of me that, has, that is willingly giving up his life for you to wash sins away, right? So number one, this is the most precious thing to me that I am sacrificing for you. Second part is I, I love him, right? Now remember, nine months from now, as Jesus descends this Mount of Transfiguration, it would be pain and crucifixion, right? And yet God says, I love what he is doing because of my love for you. And lastly, just simply says, listen to him. What does that mean for us? It means we get to hear his voice on the pages of Scripture, right? We get to hear God himself speak to us through Christ's ministry and through the pages of Scripture. It means that we are able to open our Bibles and ask ourselves and look to understand the heart of our God above and the depth of his wisdom and how transcendent and how large he is and how unlike us he is. And we want that. Let me, put, let me say this, we need that. Because if you could fit your transfigured Christ and God into your defined box, he's not much of a God, is he? It only stands to reason that there are many things and, and many things that Christ did that we can grab a hold of and we can understand and how He taught and the things that he did, but there will always be there necessarily must be parts of Christ and our God above that are simply outside of anything that we've experienced. And you need it to be that way. Because if we can wrap it all up in our own little box, he's not much of a God at all, is he? But here's the good news. He's way more than that. He's your God, right? He's the God that died on the cross for the sins of all people. He is big enough, He is broad enough, He is, he is capable enough to wash sins away. And so I think at times I fear that maybe we, we, we overly intellectualize Christ and Scripture and absolutely we, we dig into the details and we want to know about Him, but I fear at times we let that pendulum go so far one way that we don't pause and simply say, there are things that I cannot know, there are things that I will not know, but there will be a day when I know them intimately. When I stand in the presence of perfection, not in fear and terror, groveling on the ground like the disciples, but with joy and a smile on my face because Jesus Christ has welcomed me into eternity. Not on the basis of what I've done, uh, uh, the people I've let down, but on the basis of his perfection. Perfection. Poured out and given for me. And so Christ gives us a little different view of our past. But he absolutely gives us a different view of our future and where we're headed. Right? Ultimately, on account of Christ, it's eternity. That view, remember, this is actually at the Grand Canyon. Everybody, anybody ever been to the Grand Canyon? Most of us probably have, Yeah. Um, this is one of those old school, like, I don't know if they still have them there. Anybody from, been there recently? Do they still have the quarter-operated telescopes? So, I don't know if they still do. Um, but you need, it, you need one, don't you? There are certain times where there are things that are so big and so broad that the only way you can, you can wrap your head around it is to bring it in closer. I think the transfiguration does that for us. God is absolutely all those things, but he also brings it closer to us so we can see him clearly. Right? And that changes how our present is dealt with. That changes how we act in our present. Finish with verse 7 and 8. But Jesus came and touched them. Get up, he said. Don't be afraid. When they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. I think it's kind of a nice way to end this experience that these disciples had with Jesus. Because ultimately, our God above chose to take on human flesh to live in our world for you. And these words could be spoken to you. And I think there are times when we pray that he does speak that to us, right? Talk about the beginning, life-changing events or things that you've done where life doesn't look the same afterwards. But did you notice that I left out maybe some events from that list? Uh, Climbing mountains, skydiving, all those things are all traveling. Those are all wonderful things, aren't they? Seeing art and beauty. But I missed some moments, didn't I? Because there are other things that change our lives in ways where life doesn't look the same afterwards. And it's not always glorious mountaintop events. Sometimes it's down in the valley. Loss of a loved one, diagnosis of disease, long-term chronic illness, maybe the loss of a job, loss of relationships that tear apart at the seams. See, we, we not only experience the highs in life that change us, but the truth is we also experience the lows that change us. To each of those, these are the words Christ comes to us with, right? Whether we are on the top of the mountain or today you feel as though you are in the deepest, darkest valley, your transfigured Lord, Jesus Christ, comes to you and says, don't be afraid, right? I will walk with you. I'll walk at your side, whether it's in the valley of the shadow of death or on the highest peaks that maybe your life and career are going to afford. He says, don't be afraid because I'll walk with you. They saw no one except Jesus. I think that's a pretty good rule of thumb for us as believers in our daily living. The more we can look to him, the more we we focus on Christ and who he is, just like our picture from Raphael with Matthew in the midst of the chaos at the bottom of the painting, simply pointing to Christ, I think that's our same opportunity. Whether we're high or we're low, we see no one except Christ. And when we see Him, we know we are forgiven, that you are loved, right? That our past has been washed away, that our future is secure, and that He's going to journey with us through the highs and the lows. You want to know who understood that? A guy named Peter. Because this is what he wrote in our first lesson today, right? Peter, reflecting on this Mount of Transfiguration, says, For we did not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Here's what Peter is saying. This isn't a a, a list of self-help things. This isn't just some good suggestions. But this was transformational that it was transformational for us because we saw it. We were eyewitnesses of it. And what he's saying to us and what believers for thousands of years have said to you and I here today, is the very same thing. We are eyewitnesses of Christ and his glory. Our hearts have been changed from darkness to light. And so we point to him and we walk with him and we hear his words. Don't be afraid. Amen. (laughs)